0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Aplastic Anemia and MDS International Foundation podcast series. We're coming to you today thanks to generous support from individuals, donors, and our corporate partners, including Celgene. My name is Tricia, and I'd like to introduce Robert Burleson, our communications
1: manager.
2: Hello, everyone, and I'd like to introduce Norma Good, who's from Florida. Hi, Norma. How are things in sunny Florida?
1: Things are very nice in Florida. Sunny, well, not too sunny today,
2: but normally is. Yeah. Well, we're pleased to hear that. And so with that, let's get started. Uh, Norma is a long-term survivor of MDS, which was actually first diagnosed as a plastic anemia and then was changed over to MDS. So first, just to get started, we'd like to know a little bit about you, just what your life was like and what you were doing before... You received this diagnosis.
1: Okay, I am an educator, and I was a real estate educator because I bet I was a realtor for fifty two years. So I was on the road teaching agency law throughout the state of Ohio and Kentucky. And while I was traveling, things started going wrong with nosebleeds and body bruises and earaches and, you know, all those kind of things. And uh, so that led up to the fact that I knew something was wrong and uh, had to go to a physician to find out what was going on.
2: Okay. And then from the time that these symptoms began for the diagnosis, actually the first one, which was aplastic anemia, how long did all of that take?
1: Oh, let's see, looking at my records, and I have kept records because I find that to be very helpful. Uh, my first problem started in December of 88. I went to the my local hospital and had my first transfusion on April the 4th of 89. So it was a little over a year of symptoms before I actually had my first transfusion.
2: And then, I guess, transfusions... Uh supportive care happened, and then more testing done for this diagnosis. Correct. Okay. And then uh, just to interject right here, when and how did you find us, AAMDSIF? When did that happen, and what sort of interaction did you first have with us, and what kind of resources of ours did you use? Well, actually, it
1: was a friend of mine who was, uh, receptionist in a dentist office, who one of their patients had lost her husband to aplastic anemia, and of course, my friend, when I was first diagnosed with aplastic anemia, she, you know, heard the word and she said she talked to this lady, and this lady's husband had gotten introduced to the foundation previous to his death, and she had a folder left over and my friend gave that to me and that's how I found out about the foundation mm-hmm. and so I contacted the foundation and whatever methods were back then I don't even remember if it was by telephone or but my first contact I can say because she's still around and that was Lee.
2: Lee Clark, yes. yes. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So you found us really right. through, through a personal connection I'd say.
1: Yes, Mm -hmm. Lee and I have, as I say, that was clear back in the late 80s, early 90s. And, of course, Lee and I have known each other and see each other at meetings over all these years. So we've gotten to be very close.
2: Thank you. Now, I'd like to ask you, during this first segment of your journey with this, um, soon after you were diagnosed and you're getting some transfusions, What kind of challenges did you face or what kind of adaptations did you have to make?
1: Well, luckily, as I said, being an educator, I was my own boss, and I was able to adjust my teaching schedule to four days a week because I was at a university, and I made my schedule four days a week, and that cleared my Fridays to get my transfusions and, you know, take care of myself on a weekly basis. So that way I had some time that I knew I could schedule whatever was necessary and so forth. You know, I was very blessed to be my own boss in reality that I could adjust my schedule that way. Because, you know, if you're working for somebody else, it's not that easy. Correct. So that was a real blessing.
2: You're very you're fortunate in that respect. Now, following on, can you... Tell us what happened next. I know from your story and what I've read, uh, other treatments were then tried.
1: Uh, Well, I went to the Cleveland Clinic first, and they're the ones that started me out and said that they thought it was aplastic aplastic anemia. And I had gamma globulin and uh, prednisone. And uh, they said then to... Get off of hormones and no aspirin because they were quite sure it was aplastic anemia. So I had my transfusions, but then, you know, realized that they weren't able to go any further, and I ended up by. Researching with my local hematologist, we got in touch with the National Institutes of Health in right, Bethesda.
2: Right here in Bethesda, and, where we are. Um,
1: correct. I did. So So I entered the National Institutes of Health in June of 89, and I was actually considered a clinical patient there. and went on a growth factor protocol and was with NIH for almost six years.
2: Thank you. Now, could— could you tell us a little bit about just the sequence of treatment and your experience in this uh, clinical trial?
1: Okay. the uh, As I say, the first was the gamma globulin. But then when I entered NIH, um, they did bone marrow biopsies naturally, quite a few of them. My first treatment was ATG, and that was in July of 89. And then... After that, we went on the growth factor protocols, and I ended up using um, GCF, GCF, correct. And then I used um, interferon three, and then I went on GMCF, F, and uh, the last one I used was Neupogen.
2: So you went through a, a number of different um, drug treatments. Growth
1: factors, yes. Growth factor yes, treatments. Mm, and yeah, they, they I were was all on,
2: part of this trial, all of this was?
1: Correct. Okay. I went on four different growth factors, and of course you had to have a time period in between them to get them out of your system before you could start on another one. So that took up a lot of time. And of course, during the whole time, I was on uh, transfusions regularly. It was the GMC-SF and then IL-3, and then the Neupogen was the third one, and the NUPogen was the one that started to turn my counts around.
2: So that means a number of treatments were tried, and then this last one, Neupogen, was what really had an effect.
1: That's correct.
2: And this was all part of the same trial, same uh, right. sequence of treatment.
0: Right. Did you get to have it at your location where you lived then, or did you have to travel to Bethesda, Maryland?
1: I traveled to Bethesda. I got my transfusion in my local area, but I had to travel to Bethesda quite often, mostly by airplane. A few times, my husband and I would drive down and back, but uh, it was going back and forth. And it wasn't until April twenty-sixth of nineteen ninety that NIH diagnosed it as myelodysplasia with a minus 5q.
2: Okay, so that was my you anticipated my next question which was you know at first you had an aplastic anemia diagnosis and and there was that type of treatment and then it changed. Correct. Okay. Um just moving away from this detail about the treatment uh and the treatment timeline Um, just over more to the coping side, did you ever get discouraged along the way? And how did you manage things and get through this? Who was there to help you?
1: I did get discouraged, uh, as time went on, you know, I can remember sitting in my home. Of course, I had a very wonderful husband and I have three children and, uh, I have a very strong faith that I stick with, but there were times when I would sit when I was alone and think, okay, this may be it. I may not get through this, and uh, it was very difficult, but that's why I was very thankful to be able to continue my teaching, because by being able to be out every day and get my mind off of myself, I was able to really cope with life a lot better than I had met some people during that time period who had been diagnosed. And I tried to encourage them, but they were somewhat self-centered in their life and didn't have anybody else. And I have to be honest, a number of them did not get through it. And I think part of it is, you know, you have to have that desire and strong faith that you can get through it because without it, you're not going to get through it.
2: Mm-hmm. Clearly mm-hmm. suggesting that uh, mm-hmm. your attitude and mental attitude uh, towards this helps you succeed.
1: It definitely helps. You have to have a positive attitude all the way.
2: On, uh, one other thing I'd like to bring up we don't have to go into much detail, really, but uh, you know, your story and record does indicate that there. Were some issues with uh, insurance coverage, insurance companies?
1: In the beginning, it was unbelievable what I had to go through because my insurance didn't cover hardly anything, and I had to keep changing insurances. And it wasn't until I finally got to NIH, which, of course, is government-funded, that my worries on that end kind of disappeared because everything was covered there. And as a normal citizen, I would not have been able to afford in any way, shape, or form the growth factor protocol that I went through. The medications were awfully expensive. So, you know, and I know medications today are extremely expensive.
2: So there was so a, that, initial problems with insurance that were, you know, oh, went Oh, very to, much so. Went away. for
1: the... For the, well, like I say, until it was about a year and a half to almost two years before I got to NIH. And so I had those years that I suffered and thought, okay, how are we going to afford this? What am I going to do? You know, and I had children to worry about. And, you know, it it was mental anguish for a good long time.
2: Going, but thank you for just talking about that a little bit. So your association with NIH in this Treatment phase of treatment really you said lasted almost six years.
1: Well, I would say the total amount of time came up to six. As actually going back and forth for treatment, it was four years.
2: Okay, and
1: then from there on, I only went back like every well, it started out every six months and it went on, but I only went back every year.
2: When was the last time you were back?
1: <laughs> oh, hold on, I've got it's it.
2: It's been a while.
1: Okay. <laughs> It's been a while, yes. My last trip to NIH was in ninety
2: four. Okay. So yes, it's been a while then. So you are truly a long term survivor and are you getting um uh any kind of maintenance or uh having checkups now, just keeping well, on I top still, of things?
1: I still get blood counts much more often than the normal person because I had iron overload and was on death for all chelation for three years after my transfusions. Okay. Oh. So, so, you know, I had that to face. So from that time forward, I had to have counts that included the ferritin count because I couldn't let the iron get back up to where it would create another problem.
2: Uh, iron so, overload caused by the transfusions.
1: Correct. That's mm-hmm. what it was caused by. Mm-hmm. Now,
2: at this point, all you're really doing is having uh, just uh, blood counts somewhat more often than normal.
1: Correct. More often than normal person does, yeah.
2: Would you say there was a particular year when you considered yourself, well, I'm in remission, when you just felt that way?
1: Uh, as I look at my records here, I got off a of death for all in 94, And went on to normal local physicians almost clearly in 2010. Okay. So that was pretty long from the beginning. So I would say looking at what, when I went over to just going to seeing regular local doctors and not anybody else that was in 2010.
2: Oh. So, so, from that point... Quite a few years since then.
1: Yes, and it si- is.
2: Since then, what have you been doing? Your interest in work and activity now?
1: Well, I, uh, you know, as I say, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> but I live in Florida, as we've discussed. Mm-hmm. And I live in some, out, just outside of Sun City Center, which, of course, is loaded with um, nursing homes and rehab places. I have been a, I was a music major and a vocalist all my life. Oh, that's great. So I've started a group here in Sun City Center through my church, and we visit nursing homes once a week and have sing-alongs with the patients. And of course, being a music educator, I've brought instruments into it, and we do a lot of things to get the patients involved. And get their mind off of their problems too. So I do that on a weekly basis.
2: That's very interesting. Correct. So you're staying busy and active, and everything that happened with uh, bone marrow failure disease is, you know, in the rearview mirror for you.
1: That it is in the past. By all means. So you right. are
2: truly a long-term survivor. Mm-hmm. We've heard so much about your story today. And then I'd like well, to, you'd, I'd like to close out, with one. I always ask people in these interviews if you had one thought that you'd like to share with other bone marrow failure disease patients who are where you were way back then, starting out, scared. Uh, If you have one, after everything you've been through and experienced, if you had one thought that you could share with them, what would that be?
1: Well, as I've discussed through this interview, that, you have to have a strong faith and determination, and you need to have that from the very beginning, and you can't let it fail because there are moments along the road when it will fail, and you've got to get yourself back to thinking, uh-uh, I can do this. I can get through this no matter what they throw at me. That's the one thing, and right now, I just, as I say, I just got diagnosed with uh, mild Final stenosis. And it's another hard road that I'm going to have to face. But I've had to have a good long talk with myself and say, okay, whatever I have to do, I've got my little cane, I have a walker if I need it, I will do it, you know, to go ahead and enjoy what life I can enjoy with what I have left.
2: Well, that's just an incredible determination you have. Um, So, you know, Nora, thanks for sharing so much information about your uh, journey, which, you know, started really 30 years ago, and then the insights you uh, received from that uh, experience. So, back over to you, Tricia.
0: Thank you, Bob, and thank you so much, Norma, for how you're well, making... you are very
1: imp- welcome.
0: You know you're making an impact on the lives of our listeners today.
1: Well, well I-, I certainly hope so, because they they can get through it if they just hang in there and Keep the faith and do what the doctor's them, but have a good doctor, and one you, you trust.
0: Good words. And thanks to listeners also for being here. As a reminder, the AAMDSIF helpline is here for you at 800-747-2820, option 2, or email help at aamds.org, where you can be connected with Peer Support Network and other support groups. To connect with your peers online, you can join the confidential chat at marrowforums.org, which you can also find through our website, aamds.org. We'll see you next time. So long.